it's not all or nothing. You know, we can have completely permissionless protocols only using permissionless assets. And as long as people retain the ability to use those, in my opinion, uh, why not have uh, folks have the option to use permission pools or permissioned assets, which, as you mentioned, there is clearly demand for This episode is brought to you by Chainalysis, the leading blockchain data platform that powers investigation, compliance, and risk management tools used by both businesses and government agencies around the globe. You'll hear more about Chainalysis later in the show. Welcome back, everyone. I'm really excited. Uh, it's been a while since we did our last regulatory pod, and a lot of things have happened since. And so now we're joined by Rebecca again. She, uh, if you've been under a rock, she leads policy. She's a le- what is it? The chief policy and Chief's legal, legal and policy officer. Legal Polygon. and policy officer or Polygon. I still can't, can't get it right after so many years we've known each other. Uh, and we also have Miller, who is the CEO of the DeFi Education Fund, which is the only uh, specific organization that is advocating for DeFi. And so it's great to have you both on. Um, I know we want to cover a paper that you guys recently published, as well as some of the rulemaking that is making a lot of headlines today around um, uh, you know, the SEC. So uh, guys, welcome to the show. Um, if you guys want to introduce yourselves, we can do that, and then we can jump into the discussion. Sure. Thanks. Uh, well, as you said, uh, Rebecca Reddick, Chief Legal and Policy Officer at Polygon Labs. Um, so as to not bore people who've already heard other regulatory pods, uh, I've been a lawyer for a long time, but I've been a lawyer in the crypto space for a very long time. And as Santi and I go way back to before we all called DeFi DeFi, um, where we were really trying to figure out these new permissionless systems. I don't even call them peer-to-peer, honestly. I think they're just intermediary-less systems um, that mostly allow you to interact and engage with software. Uh, and so worked a lot on how to counsel software developers on regulatory concerns from a very early stage. So DeFi is something I love. I'm on the board of the DeFi Education Fund. uh, And it's one of the things that I'm most passionate about and seeing all their work, both in the US and abroad. So I'll turn it over to Miller. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, There is a lot going on in the policy scene. Our role is to hopefully uh, figure out smart policies such that crypto lawyers have good answers for their clients, which is uh, not an easy task. Obviously, the absence of intermediaries challenges the traditional approach to regulation in financial services uh, pretty fundamentally. And as governments are struggling to figure out what to do, our job is to educate policymakers and advocate for policies that are going to be welcoming of Uh, permissionless DeFi protocols and people's access to them. So that is our role. And uh, Rebecca's paper, I think, is an important uh, development in that debate. So before we jump into that, uh, I'm curious for like, when did the DeFi Education Fund get started? Who's really behind it in terms of, uh, I assume, a lot of funds, a lot of people that have vested stake um, and protocols? I'm curious if you could just give a brief overview on, on that. Yeah, we have a, a very DeFi native origin story. It was originally conceived and uh, funded by a Uniswap DAO governance proposal in mid-2021. So uh, we are the only crypto advocacy org, and I think only advocacy org in the world, uh, that was initially created via a DAO governance vote. So that is uh, how we got started. Great. 
And beyond Uniswap, I'm sure there's a number of other DeFi protocols and funds that have backed you, if memory serves me right. Yes, and hopefully more still. <laughs> more yeah. still. I think people will start seeing more governance proposals out there. Um, I think the interesting thing, I'll I'll give a little kick to Miller because he's he's not going to self-promote too much. But <laughs> I think the thing, I think the reason the DeFi Education Fund is so important is that the work that happens behind the scenes is twofold. And then there's sort of work that we see. So the work behind the scenes is twofold is meeting on the Hill, meeting with regulators globally, doing that type of education. The other thing that I think the DeFi Education Fund does that's super fundamentally important to the way DeFi is perceived is Miller and the DeFi Education Fund. Um, there's a lot of work to educate the press too demos and things like that, which I think is really important given the bad rap and that DeFi somehow, you know, can become a bad word, even though I think people may use it in a way they, they don't intend to. And then I think the other reason the DeFi Education Fund is really important, and it's super important to fund them in many ways. So if people are interested, reach out to Miller, but is that a lot of the work that the DeFi Education Fund has um, come to take on is advocacy through amicus briefs uh, and the types of impact litigation that's out there. So one of the most gratifying things to see as a board member was that the judge in the SEC action against Coinbase cited the DeFi Education Fund amicus many times, calling us the DeFi people, which is one of my <laughs> favorite monikers now. Uh, but you know that that amicus brief really took on descriptions of the wallet and of staking and of things that are extremely crypto native. Um, and a lot of the work there is spearheaded by the DeFi Education Fund's chief legal officer, Amanda Tuanelli. Uh, but I think the work that DEF is doing to educate via amicus briefs in the litigation that's out there is really important too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, should we get into the paper? Because I think that covers a lot of um, um, so, so this is, um, I believe you published it late January. So January 29th, um, the paper comes out and it's called Genuine DeFi as Critical Infrastructure, a Conceptual Framework for Combating Illicit Finance Activity in Decentralized Finance. You co-authored it along with Michael Mosier and Katya, um, who I believe also works at Polygon. She does. Yep. She's a senior public policy lead. And Mike Mosier has his own boutique firm uh, called Arcturos. He's also a partner at a VC called Exante. Uh, but more interestingly, for purposes of the paper, he had a long history in public service, um, both at OFAC, the Office of Foreign Asset Control, as well as FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, which is the Financial Intelligence Unit at the Treasury Department, uh, and also worked at the DOJ. I think the genesis for this is really something that Miller referenced early on, which is what are our regulations here when you have an intermediarialist system? Um, how do we go about this? I think the illicit finance question has been percolating for a while. I think it obviously especially hit a fever pitch first with the tornado cash sanctions, but that was a while ago. And then I think it, it sort of maintained this buzz for a while. And then I think once uh, the Binance um, uh, settlement came down and case came down, and then with the October 7th um, discussion in the Wall Street Journal about Hamas using crypto to fund its, its recent attack, it really had brought things to a new level, specifically in DC. Although I'll be honest, the EU has been really focused on what to do on the illicit finance side of crypto. And also as much as everybody's been saying, 
you know, Mika is so great in lauding it. I think the AML side, the anti-money laundering side, and those types of regulations in Europe are going to be very restrictive too. So this paper was really meant to take a lot of the dialogue we've heard where people have tried to import the old, what we call financial integrity regime, right? Financial integrity, at least in the US, comes from the Bank Secrecy Act, um, which which regulates what we know as, as financial institutions. So banks, broker dealers, uh, certain types of CFTC regulated entities, casinos, whatever, uh, and then also our sanctions laws. Um, and tried to, people have tried to sort of do square peg, round hole kind of thing and say, well, if we have things that are financial institutions and that's how we combat illicit finance today, let's just do the exact same thing with this blockchain system. Um, and trying to find who in the blockchain system, which is fundamentally a software communications protocol, um, would be a financial institution. And Mike has done great work uh, in the past too, both on the government side. Uh, and he he was at FinCEN when the 2019 FinCEN guidance came out, which was really about how to think about software in the um, crypto space uh, and whether it would be a financial institution or be regulated or not. So really trying to come up with an answer to things like, look, we've seen a number of powerful, prominent senators put out proposals on what AML, anti-money laundering um, legislation should be. Uh, and a lot of that brings in the who's a financial institution, who's responsible for sanctions violations. One of them proposes, you know, governance token holders may be responsible for putting um, sanctions uh, controls around DeFi protocols. And I think Mike and I really, when we were conceptualizing the paper, looked at it. If you look at the paper, you'll see there's like this whole long section that describes what DeFi does, right? And how it works at each feature, right? What does a wallet do? A relayer, it's optional. What do RPC nodes do? Um, you know, what does the protocol do? What is the front end? Those kinds of things. And then looks at the sources of illicit finance there. Because right in... In the TradFi world, illicit finance comes from one, having honeypots of data, and then two, where people are making subjective judgments either about onboarding customers or users or there being some sort of flaws in the system. And uh, looking at where illicit finance comes from in these permissionless software systems shows it is very different. And so we wanted to have a framework that one, would be super effective, two, would be in line with what regulation we've seen or guidance we've seen to date from regulators, like the 2019 FinCEN guidance, and three, um, would be true to what the software actually does and combat the sources of risk where you can find them. It's a long-winded version of where of the origin story of this paper, but Miller. Uh, to put a bit of a finer point on it, um, the paper, I think, is trying to answer, and I think is one of the first attempts at even answering uh, a policy question that's really fundamental and in in this context, in the context of AML, which is where there are systems without financial intermediaries, how does one accomplish the public policy objectives we all support in this context, combating illicit financial activity? One answer, which uh, is highly problematic, is to force the creation of intermediaries where they don't exist. So. That is uh, porting over the traditional old system into this new context and essentially saying you can't uh, have intermediary list financial system uh, because mm -hmm. we don't know how to accomplish our public policy objectives in that world. 
Um, so for example, Senator Elizabeth Warren's bill uh, would do just that. It would say uh, there, it essentially says there are not financial intermediaries here. So we're just gonna make a bunch of new people financial intermediaries, even though they don't actually function as such, uh, so that we can apply these old uh, obligations to them. And Rebecca and Mike and Katia's paper uh, proposes a different way to accomplish the same objectives. That doesn't uh, mean totally undermining the fundamental innovation of DeFi. Yeah, that's such a good point. And just backtracking for a bit, um, the big confusion from my standpoint has been when you try to, pour, as you said, when you people are looking at DeFi as if it were a traditional financial system and gloss over this idea, as you said, that there are these protocols that just don't have an intermediary. Like certainly like you can have key persons that can upgrade a contract that can be centralized in, in, in that manner, which would be problematic, I guess. But if you have, for instance, Uniswap, like they, they deploy V3 or, or whatever, and it's out in the wild, like you, you, it's like they can't control it. They can't uh, influence it, influence these markets in the traditional sense, like you, but there may be the ability to maybe manipulate a price on chain, which is very easy to detect. Um, but of course, like for anyone listening to this, it doesn't have like a deep understanding of DeFi. It's really hard to conceptualize this. And I wonder like from your standpoint, how much of, uh, how much, how much do regulators appreciate the novelty of DeFi? I mean, of course this paper, like, is part of the education of it, but it's been a few years where we've tried to educate regulators. So I'm curious if there's been any progress in them understanding um, the key distinctions of what DeFi is versus a traditional financial system. Uh, I would say that it's all over the board as far as understanding is concerned. I think one thing that uh, folks in crypto sometimes overlook is that I think there are many, uh, for example, the SEC and the IRS, there are many regulators that do have an understanding of the novel novelty of DeFi protocols, as exactly as you just described, but uh, just disagree that setting up a new system to accomplish longstanding objectives is necessary or desirable. So I think they're remains certainly a lot of uh, education to be done, like, uh, which is the understatement of the century. But uh, I think many of these proposals are based on a uh, full understanding of the novelties of DeFi and a different policy conclusion than we would have. You mean the paper is based on the understanding of the novelty, or you think regulators Oh, I think some regulators do understand DeFi and why, uh, like a different approach would be necessary for permissionless systems. And their answer is, okay, permissionless systems are unacceptable. Oh, yeah. yes. My response to your question, Sante, was going to be, it depends on where you are in the world, right? <laughs> uh, I've had regulators abroad say to me, you know, why doesn't the U.S. like permissionless ledgers? Right. I don't we don't like literally verbatim has asked me that question. Um, and so there is an understanding in other parts of the world what this technology does, why it may be beneficial. Um, I think that, as Miller said here, it's very case specific, even if you understand it and understand some of the benefits. 
it, it's not enough to outweigh whatever issues you may have fundamentally with the technology. Is, is the issue more so control where, because like, I mean, your question is a really basic one and it's hard to answer. Like, it's like you have a transparent system. And if you were to describe this to any historian or, or my friends at like JP Moore, like wall street, and you describe a system without saying DeFi and you save it till the end. They're like, yeah, like we agree that like, it would be much nicer to have a system where like, you know, your counterparty, you know, like the, the like when you deposit your funds in Aave or compound, like it, it's just a, a lot of the issues that are happening in the traditional financial system, like bank collapses, where you don't have really good transparency into what's going on in real time. Well, you wonder, well, a lot of it can be solved if you all of this happened in an open, transparent manner. Quite frankly, the Bank Secrecy Act actually grew out of the fact of the need to for regulators to yeah. at least have more transparency in banks, right? Because there was lots of uh, sort of illicit activity that was going on in the, you know. Yeah, 1920s or whatever. Yeah, um, I have to remember because we did a whole, we went down this whole long rabbit hole of um, the history of the Bank Secrecy Act uh, as we were writing the paper. Um, and kudos to Katya, uh, one of our co-authors for doing that. Yeah, 1970. So. I mean, same, same. Um, but, uh, you know, banks did not have transparency into who their customers were. And so the Bank Secrecy Act really grew out of the need for record keeping on who your customers were in the event that um, law enforcement needed information. So, uh, you know, some of that should be rectified by these permissionless systems uh, where everything is pretty transparent. So. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, not to like, this episode is not meant to be a criticism of traditional financial systems. We can spend hours and hours on that. I mean, clearly the proof's in the pudding. Fail, failure continues to happen. It's a very, not very, an imperfect system. Nonetheless, I think the, the focus that I want to go to is illicit activity happens to some extent in open proliferative systems in DeFi. Sure. And so could we just address like, where are you seeing that? Uh, the, 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 the amount relative to the total volume that we're seeing, I mean, um, Maybe we just put it in context. Yeah. So the paper has a section that goes through like where the sources of illicit finance, um, one of which we um, talk about is cyber risk, right? If you've coded the protocol incorrectly, if it hasn't been audited correctly, or even if you do code it and audit correctly, there may be this loophole that can exist for many, many years, right? And somebody finds it you know, five, 10 years, even some of the best protocols with great Lindy effect and things like that. There's another um, risk called system management risk. And we try to do these case studies that highlight them. So on the cyber risk, we talk about wormhole and there was this loophole, um, a system management risk uh, where basically the systems are not as permissionless as they are purported to be, or there is um, just like poor security um, around the protocols and through the dev codes and things like that. Uh, so Axie Infinity is a great example of that, right? Because Sky Mavis held all of the, you know, five of nine keys needed. Uh, and some of it was just like somebody forgot that they were holding one or two keys and forgot to get them back from them. And so there was this social engineering exploit, which is a web two exploit, honestly, that happens all the time. Uh, and then the last part, which is what I think uh, plagues uh, regulators and policymakers the most is this usage risk, right? That you can uh, basically in permissionless systems take the proceeds of a hack, maybe from a cyber right attack from the cyber risk point, um, and then put them into 
uh, 50 different wallets and the 50 different wallets can send them to tons of different protocols and bridge them into tons of different chains. And then they can go to tornado cash or things where you can sort of break the chain of the transparency and not figure it out. So I think the usage risk and the inability to theoretically try to stop some of the illicit activity, even if you're seeing it on chain because it happens so fast uh, and in such a permissionless way, uh, also is what really plagues them. But I don't know if Miller has other insight from other discussions he may have had about this. Yeah, I think the latter is one that the like DeFi folks don't think about as much, but I think is like top of mind for regulators. So just to summarize, on the one hand, you have what I think about as being primary risks, hacks of protocols, exploits, etc. On the other hand, you have like, forget about the um, predicate illicit activity, uh, but people trying to move their ill-gotten gains through DeFi protocols itself as being a risk, be it from hacks or be it from off-chain illicit activity that folks have uh, gotten some money from and then want to use uh, crypto or DeFi protocols to move their assets in some way. Uh, the latter being, um, I think, a top of mind uh, concern for regulators that folks in the industry don't think about as much. Yeah. And, and to that response, you'd be like, well, wouldn't you say it's, it's so, so say tornado cash, which is probably the most problematic, right? Um, if all the checkpoints where you're, where, you know, fiat money is entering DeFi are, are enforced properly, then, then you don't really need much, you know, like if you truly focus on like the, the on-ramps, then you don't have a problem because all the theoretically all the money within the system is uh, clean to start. Of course, you could have like manipulation, profitable trading strategies that are obviously problematic and you can enforce those. And by the way, it's rather easy to enforce because you're seeing everything on chain like you can't hide this stuff. And so it's very easy to crack down on that. But I, I'm curious, um, you know, of course, like there's uh, reports of like, you know, the Lazarus group, you know, using DeFi as a, you know, the constant hacks, but also just launch, like, you know, using a mixer to, you know, uh, uh, you know, take money out of the system. Um, how do you solve that? Or, or what is the response to a regulator that might ask you that question? Yeah, great, great point. So I, I want to address all, a lot of the things you said. Um, just because, you know, for those of us who are down the policy rabbit hole a lot, uh, we think about this, but I, I think we need to make some of the things sort of level set before we get into the proposal too. So first of all, Tornado Cash was not problematic from day one. It was out there existing and being used for actually a number of years, well before the Office of Foreign Asset Control imposed sanctions. And one of the reasons that it was sanctioned is because, as you sort of raised, um, Lazarus Group was found to have uh, brought through something, you know, the numbers are something like 40% of the volume that's gone through Tornado Cash. Quite frankly, if an overseas bank or even a U.S. bank was found to have been, you know, laundered, like that 40% of the funds going through the bank were being laundered uh, by Lazarus Group or something like that, they also would face sanctions. Now, I think what was so novel about Tornado Cash is that you're sanctioning software and uh, we don't have to go well down the rabbit hole. Um, but, you know, how do you comply even with sanctions, which are really directed to in, 
as we say in the paper, towards intermediate, and as we said on this podcast, towards intermediaries uh, and persons, right? So unclear what the blocked property is, unclear what you can do. It's, I think that's really been the biggest problem um, because one, it's permissionless. And so who does it really affect? So I think the tornado cash part is very, very complex. On the on and off ramps and the transparency point, those arguments are over. We, I think a lot of people tried those for a very long time and much, and still are talking about the fact that it's one of the best places to capture illicit actors and agree. Uh, I think Miller and I probably both agree with you in many, in many ways, but that is not enough anymore for a couple reasons. One of which is even if all the US-based exchanges, a Coinbase, a Kraken, a Gemini, whatever, are really compliant. They are all money services businesses um, and, you know, are BSA compliant and really doing their best uh, to do KYC, AML, all of those things. The offshore exchanges are not compliant. And we know that. And the Financial Action Task Force, was, which is the international anti-money laundering regulator, has basically said that and this kind of stuff, I think there's like 17 to 20 percent of compliance worldwide. So, you know, Lazarus is not trying to like offboard <laughs> through Coinbase US, right? They're offboarding through some non-compliant, probably small exchange um, mm-hmm. somewhere else in the world. And so just trying to say like, well, regulate that on off ramps. Like, you know, um, I think that that's that just doesn't win the that day. That doesn't fly. So and there's also, there is no obviously universal agreement on who should be in and out of the system. A Russian right, yeah, 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 crypto exchange doesn't have the same idea or uh, the Russian government doesn't have the same idea as to who and what is an illicit actor and illicit activity as the U.S. government does. Uh, so mm-hmm. I think that it, it's a more macro struggle that governments mm-hmm. are having, like the U.S. government is now dealing with this global permissionless network in a world where mm-hmm. we have different sovereigns with you know different ideas of what is is not acceptable. I also think it's I also think the the quote unquote ring fence only works in a world in which crypto cannot be used to buy goods and services. And uh, today, you know, that doesn't happen on mass, but uh, in the future, hopefully, there uh, will be. You know, mass use of crypto for buying goods and services. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I think we should be skating to where the puck's going a bit. Yeah. And honestly, the transparency point, we've all tried to use that. And there's even a section of the paper on it. Like after we go through the, uh, you know, Michael Katya and I go through the illicit finance um, risks, we do talk about the benefits of the transparency. And we do this case study on something called Welcome to Video, which happened a long time ago, where the IRS really relied on the transparency of blockchain to bring down sort of large child pornography ring overseas. And they are still catching bad guys in that ring to date. So, and I think law enforcement would say, um, and it's unfortunate Michael's not here because he does work with a lot of people in law enforcement still on behalf of his clients, that the transparency really helps. Um, And, but, and one of the things this proposal tries to do is to leverage the transparency to get the information so that it's available to law enforcement faster. Because some of it is, Tracing just takes a while, right? Like no matter how many great tools that are out there, um, it takes a while. I think the one great benefit of the transparency is with respect to speaking about the proposal in this paper and just illicit finance, since that's what we're talking about, is 
within an hour of a hack, let's say, you can identify where the like which wallets were immediately identified, right? Um, it, or immediately, you know, involved in it. And so I think making sure we highlight some of the benefits of the transparency as part of a larger um, a larger framework is beneficial. But like that and the off ramps alone, to Miller's point, like that's not enough, and we have to sort of, you know, give them something more. And look, the deputies. The Deputy Treasury Secretary in November put out a letter to the Senate Banking Committee saying, listen, we really have to do something about this fintech illicit finance problem. And then went on to talk about uh, crypto potential options Mm -hmm. in terms of how to fix illicit finance. Uh, And then also spoke the next day to the Blockchain Association uh, membership at their conference and said, guys, got to give us something like Mm -hmm. help us help us help you kind of, and has been saying that for a long time. And so I think that also really spurred myself and my co-authors to say like, fine, mm-hmm. we, we gotta, we gotta sit down and think about something. And, um, I, I will say, cause I, I bleed for DeFi. Uh, I didn't, I didn't do anything over the holidays. Cause I, I really wanted to think like what's viable and what's going to be helpful. And so I spent my holidays doing this. Chainalysis is the premier blockchain data platform. Crypto businesses, financial institutions, government agencies, regulators, and policymakers all utilize Chainalysis's data and services to make sense of what's happening on the blockchain. Chainalysis demystifies crypto by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Square and Barclays and BNY Mellon. As regulators and policymakers work together to pass legislation that provides clarity for crypto businesses and protects consumers, they have the chance to do so with unparalleled data and research into the entire crypto ecosystem. Gain greater visibility and insight with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting chainalysis.com forward slash empire. If you are looking into compliance and you need blockchain compliance, there is no better place. It is chainalysis.com forward slash empire. So what is viable? Because I mean, I think at the heart of the matter is, Miller, you alluded to this, is you can't push policy of a sovereign on chain. Like it's hard. Like not everything is as black as white as the Lazarus group. You have enemies of the state that might not be enemies of other states. And so like that, the heart of the matter is control. Like if you're operating in the SWIFT network, like, you know, you can shut down stuff easily because it's a, it's a delegation of people that control it. And at the end of the day, the U.S. has a lot of way in that, not so much in DeFi. So what is the, like, what is the solution to that? Because if it sounds like there's a, like, like group of regulators that are always going to oppose any system that they can't control. And that is DeFi. So is there a solution or a compromise? There is a compromise. I mean, we have to come up with something. These things aren't going away and this problem isn't going away uh, from, you know, both government and industry's perspective. Um, So I think that it's time to figure something out. Uh, You know, the SWIFT example, I will say, is a very unique one because uh, SWIFT is really de facto exempted from a lot of the obligations that we've been talking about here for traditional financial intermediaries, because it is supposed to be neutral infrastructure that folks all over the world can use. And that's why it was uh, you know, quite controversial, the debate around uh, 
Russian financial institutions access to SWIFT uh, in February of 22. So, uh, you know, there has been, I suppose, SWIFT is an example of compromise coming together in a, in a way, but I, it will have to be different, of course, in the context yeah. of DeFi. Because in practice, hasn't SWIFT been like the way you enforce sanctions? What do you mean, SWIFT or like, like a, a primary, like a primary mechanism to enforce sanctions on uh, whatever the United Nations Security Council or you know G seven agrees on is an enemy of then then you can really when you shut down a government's access to the finan like financial capital markets and so you enforce sanctions, no? Oh, sanctions. Yes, I thought it's sanctions. Yeah, sanctions. Like uh, Russia is a primary example recently. Like it's through SWIFT, right? You shut down SWIFT and it's like, oh yeah, good luck. For some of it, I don't, I personally, this is where Michael would be great. He probably knows how many times SWIFT has been used uh, through the sanctions mechanism. So I don't know that off the top of my head, but yeah, I mean, look, sanctions are meant to deprive uh, illicit actors of uh, the U.S. economy, essentially, uh, and U.S. trade, right? Mm -hmm. And just hurt them from a financial perspective. So you're right from that, from that perspective, for sure. Which is exactly why many governments are attempting to come up with their own payments networks uh, such that they do not have to totally rely on U.S. financial institutions. Yeah, well, most notably Russia, China, and a few other countries. China is, is also pushing theirs out to Russia. They've just been settling their tra China-Russia trade through the digital yuan, which for me is more of a reason to make sure that we do a good job in the U.S. Uh, right. and that we continue to see the proliferation of U.S. dollar-backed or U.S. dollar-denominated stablecoins uh, and make sure they can sort of uh, continue proliferating out in the world. Because I think China, uh, and Miller can speak about this too very clearly, like there is a long-term plan from China to undermine the U.S. dollar. I think that... Um, day to day, it doesn't feel like it because it's a slow burn. Like I think, and Miller has spent time in China and things like that, but I think that they're willing to just sit it out until they can find a way to long-term, um, you know, overcome the U.S. dollar. And I think that, and most interestingly, the Bank of International Settlements uh, has a pilot project with the ability for different countries to settle trade in various CBDCs. And notably, they include China and Hong Kong in this, uh, and like Thailand and one other. Uh, and I thought that was really interesting from an undermining SWIFT perspective long term, because sanctions won't be as strong if you don't need a SWIFT, as you said. Yeah, I want to bring back the center. Uh, you conceded like, yeah, we need a solution. Rebecca, you spent the holidays thinking about a solution mm -hmm. or solutions. I'd be curious to understand what those are or what, like, what, they, what did you come up with? So, uh, the paper, uh, that we put out, um, is, as you said, called, uh, genuine DeFi is critical infrastructure. And it really seeks to answer a lot of the questions that people, um, and especially regulators and policymakers have put out about DeFi. I think one, uh, and we've seen a lot of this uh, from regulators is questioning whether whether DeFi is really decentralized. Uh, and so we really had to address that in the April uh, illicit finance risk assessment on DeFi from the Treasury Department. They basically said there's tons of this that is not decentralized. That's a huge gap. And we need to figure out if they should be regulated as financial institutions. So that's one question we wanted to answer. The other question is, well, how do you make these permissionless systems that, you know, don't have maybe a, a more 
centralized aspect to it. What do you do with them? Where, how would you even be able to make sure they're safe for use? And the last part really looks at um, where have businesses cropped up within the DeFi ecosystem where there may be benefits to achieving the types of goals that the BSA looks to, right? Documentation, detection, and deterrence or prevention um, without making these technological service providers into financial institutions, right? It's completely subject to the BSA. So one of, so that's, it's a three part, three part framework. Um, the first two parts really emanate from this paper by three academics that just came out at the end of 2023 called On DeFi, on DeFi and On-Chain CeFi. Um, we've cited in the paper a lot. It's by Katrin Schuler and Sophie Klutz uh, and Fabian Schar. And, and Professor Schar is at the University of Basel and actually has been writing a lot of scholarly work on DeFi. He put out this really interesting paper on DeFi a number of years ago through the St. Louis Fed. Um, and he's also put on put out great work on Tornado Cash and just thinking about a lot of these different issues. Um, and because we wanted the paper to be extraordinarily credible and well-researched, we read a lot of what is out there. We did a full lit review, um, both of maybe pro-DeFi articles, anti-DeFi articles that have come out and a lot of regulators work, which, you know, maybe in a more neutral or anti-DeFi camp. Uh, so we did a lot of work, but the, in the in the Schuler article, they have this distinction of something called on-chain CeFi, which are smart contract-based systems that look a lot more like centralized systems so that there is some sort of intermediary in there versus totally neutral permissionless infrastructure, which they call genuine DeFi. So in order to think about these distinctions, which I think Michael and I agreed were really a good way to look at it and to think about like, okay, well, where are things sort of decentralized in name only or not real DeFi? Um, we wanted to pose a definition of control that would put something into the on-chain CeFi camp. And the definition is based in the 2019 FinCEN guidance, which came up with something called total independent control uh, and really looked at that there. Um, and total independent control, I mean, we do independent control in the paper that is based really on the ability to affect value. Um, so in the paper, we say independent control means for a blockchain-based software system that allows for financial transactions, the unilateral ability to exercise operational authority over any third party's value or otherwise immediately affect the value within the system. And then, or admit, permit, restrict, deny, or modify those who have access to the system or the ways anyone can use or access the system. Uh, and I will say, uh, and we, you know, we put this paper out as like a start of a conversation, right? This isn't an industry consensus. Um, it's not everyone signed on to it or things like that. I do think there's a lot of um, positive reception to it, both on the industry side and the policy side, because it's just something out there that really is meant to be uh, honest about one, the risks and two, uh, what the technology does uh, and is meant to be novel. And I think all of us have been saying for many years, there, there's got to be technological solutions to this. And this is sort of the first paper out there that says, here's how to do it. But anyway, the independent control um, definition is overbroad. And we have definitely heard that it may capture people uh, that are running emergency multi-sigs or something like that, right? Because in an emergency, an emergency multi-sig with very limited powers could shut down an entire smart contract-based system that allows for financial transactions. Um, 
we tried to be extremely nuanced and say this is a two-part test. One, is there independent control? If the answer is yes, then you go to the second part of the test and you say, um, well, what, what is the controller or the system control person doing? An emergency multi-sig probably doesn't fall under this needs regulation, um, you know, is a financial institution question, uh, but it's really a facts and circumstances based analysis, which is totally consistent with the way FinCEN has looked at who's a financial institution that must be regulated for a long time. Uh, so we took this original concept from the FinCEN guidance and just built it out and tried to really have a definition that did capture a lot of what happens um, in DeFi that makes it, you know, have sort of an intermediary, maybe not in a traditional sense, but in a can affect value sense. Um, and so that's that first part of it. And that's really meant to be the gap filling for these decentralized and name only kinds of questions. And Bobby, on, on this point, I think it this definition could be thought of as draw like putting into precise words a, a under, amorphous understanding a lot of folks in industry already have, which you alluded to a couple of minutes ago talking about uh, a protocol where governance or persons have uh, a lot of powers over a smart contract versus one like completely immutably launched. You used Uniswap as an example. Uh, like folks have a a um, gut sense that there are differences there, and probably I mean regulatory differences as well. And this definition is trying to put to words that uh, kind of amorphous understanding of the differences uh, between those kinds of systems. Like for just clear examples on one side of the line versus the other, I launch a completely immutable smart contract and that's it. There's nothing I can do. It's going to be the same forever. Obviously, uh, you know, I don't have independent control. On the other hand, if I launch a smart contract where I have, you know, complete uh, uh, ability to change any part of it at any time, then I do have control over that smart contract and any person's value that's in it. Uh, which would clearly be on the other side of the line. I wonder, like, how do you see the one? I mean, it's an election year, which is difficult. And Jake had a really good tweet about this today. Hmm. Usually it's slow to get any reception or anything done. Um, but I'm curious uh, if there, if you think of other, like, what does the, the year look like um, or from your standpoint, what are some of the things that you can continue to do? And you mentioned that you do not work, not just in the U S other countries, other places seem to be more friendly yeah. towards DeFi. So how much of this is an effort to convince or, you know, win a battle in the U S because all the other countries are on hold because the U S still has a lot of weight. Um, and if there are other solutions or things that you guys are focused on, yeah. So there are two other parts of the framework, though. Mm -hmm. Like the control is just meant to answer that yeah. question. I think, as Miller yeah. was saying, for something like a Uniswap, which is genuine DeFi, um, we've proposed that it fall under the remit of something called the Office of Cybersecurity and Critical Infrastructure Protection in the United States. It's under the Treasury Department. It also is part of what uh, is called CISA, the uh, Cybersecurity and Information Security Agency, which falls under the Department of Homeland Security. Um, there are a number of different types. There are 16 different sectors in the U.S. that are uh, thought of as critical 
farming and agriculture, transportation, communications, and of course, financial services, and then a few other healthcare, things like that. Um, so critical infrastructure for transportation is something like trains and railway railways that take people around the world, airlines, things like that. And the software underlying sort of the airline schedules and the train schedules. Same thing with the way financial services works today. Um, even like cloud service providers who host servers for like Goldman Sachs uh, are thought of as, you know, providing critical infrastructure for a critical sector. Um, and so we propose that genuine DeFi, to the extent it rises to the level of being so vital for US national and economic importance uh, and security, um, be thought of as critical infrastructure as well. An OSIP, even though it's falling within the remit of the Treasury Department, is not a regulator, doesn't oversee all financial and only financial institutions. But what it does is it takes and aggregates information it, and it pushes information out in a way that is meant to be extremely collaborative. Uh, there was actually a hearing at one point about whether CISA and all of its sort of sister agencies or divisions uh should be regulators. And they literally came out and said in a congressional hearing, like, we don't want to be made or turned into a regulator. We'll stay this agency because we can't be as effective if people are worried about there being like teeth that they're going to get pulled in for enforcement if they don't abide by cybersecurity best practices or don't do uh, or look at the trends and typologies for different types of threat actors to software under like, right, somebody could shut down um, all sorts of systems. There's this, um, not to talk about competing podcasts, but there's a podcast called The Lazarus Heist, um, which is really, really interesting. And it's two seasons and it goes through all the different types of software systems that Lazarus has hit, including things like, like yeah, sure, we all talk about it with crypto, but they've been everywhere, right? Like they shut down all of Warner Brothers uh, in a way that I thought was like way scarier than like laundering, um, supposedly laundering crypto through Tornado Cash. Um, and so... Uh, it, the same would be true. So if there was like an incoming from Lazarus for something like the banks or two banks, uh, OSIP, this Office of Cybersecurity uh, and Critical Infrastructure Protection, would like call some CISOs of a bank. Um, and one of the questions we've gotten about this part of, you know, genuine DeFi being critical infrastructure, people have said like, well, if these are really permissionless systems, who are you going to call, right? Like most regulators, not just in the US, but worldwide keep saying like, who are we going to hold responsible? Like there has to be a responsible person. We can't have this otherwise. Um, and I think the way OSIP does it is it pushes this information out, which says like, here are the things that and the ways people can do it. Now, you may not be able to call every CISO because that, that just may not like a, a CISO of a dev co who developed a, you know, a genuine DeFi protocol may not be able to do anything. Um, but I think for what OSIP does over and over, um, they, they will know how to bring this forward and also learn who you can call. One of the other things that OSIP does is it has an information uh, sharing group, um, the FS, the Financial Services ISAC, and there is definitely an effort to create a crypto ISAC. And so I think a lot of the work that people have been doing in this space too, to create these cybersecurity frameworks, to create ISACs, things like that, will really get turbocharged by OSIP. Uh, and then the last part, and then we'll get to your question about like, what could we do in the US this year versus somewhere else? And Miller is really well poised to talk about that. The third part of the framework uh, proposes a new category of something called critical communications transmitters, what we call CCTs. And those are uh, basically service providers who are running a business and who are both 
necessary for the transmission of communications about a DeFi transaction and transmitting a material portion of those. Now, people have asked, well, who would be a CCT? Um, and I think the RPC nodes as a service providers are probably CCTs. We say that there needs to be new legislation to basically give FinCEN authority to regulate these CCTs, not as financial institutions, Michael is always big on this as am I, but really, really not as financial institutions, but as being in this gateway. And you'll see there's, um, there's actually like a DeFi graphic in the paper and as in a big version of it as an appendix. And you can see that they are this gateway between uh, sort of the liveness of a DeFi transaction, right? As it goes through a, like all the different software components of what we think of as DeFi systems, it's the gateway down to the you know settlement layer to the blockchain where you can have finality of your DeFi transactions. Uh, and they, they won't have KYC information and that's not what we propose, but they are having this constant flow of information for, for a material portion, right? Of DeFi transactions and what I will say uh, in giving some of the blockchain analytics companies credit is they have this wallet risk scoring system that takes all this to, to go back to your transparency point, takes all the information that you can see on chain and talks about sort of what wallets are higher risk than others, right? Like my very basic wallet that I spin up today and do nothing with, probably a zero, you know, uh, a wallet that just did a transaction through Tornado Cash, probably a, very high. I don't know what they rate it, but you know, well above five, probably close to 10. And so whatever the regulations come out to be, you could have it so that these CCTs are blocking transactions off from high-risk wallets and then auto-generating reports that go to FinCEN um, that have things like wallet ID, transaction hash, not all... Um, not all RPC nodes have IP addresses, so you wouldn't necessarily have that. You could have time and stuff like that. And even to your point, okay, maybe you could see that and see high-risk wallets um, on blockchain day-to-day, -day, but this would be real-time information going to FinCEN that could then be pushed out to law enforcement in a much stronger and quicker way. So it's really meant to be this like very comprehensive um, and pretty realistic and also very effective framework for thinking about DeFi without, as we all said, defaulting into, well, who's the financial institution here when really it's all software? Give it to me, give me the hard stuff. No, no, Miller, any, you wanna add anything to that? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you talk about, I mean, can we do any, I think the, what can we do with this question is a, is a good one. Um, I've been on the Hill since we put it out. Uh, Michael has been speaking, to, uh, Michael Mosier has been speaking to a number of his, um, you know, government contacts. Uh, still, um, we are talking to regulators all over the world about it. Um, look, it's the beginning of a conversation. I think we need to hear both from industry and from regulators and policymakers about concerns, way to, ways to make it better, um, where they think there may not be efficiencies. Um, but I do think that there is a lot of appetite for things like this. And I would encourage people to be working on these ideas and putting them out there for, for public consumption and discussion, because the more we see, like we are really trying to work together to get this issue, I'm putting it in air quotes, under control, uh, the more, the better off we'll be from a long-term perspective. But I'd love to see more stuff like this and a broader and deeper conversation with other ideas. Mm -hmm. 
So what is uh, Circle and Coinbase's role in all of this? I mean, I think when I hear all of this, I, I think of USDC as initially it was very controversial amongst a very utopian, impractical cohort within the crypto community. I remember trying to onboard it as collateral for Maker and it was highly contentious. Now it's the more, along with Tron, um, the like the most widely used stable coin. Uh, you know, in Tether, but like USCC can be censored. Um, you know, a lot of when these hacks happen, most recently, like Ripple's, one of Ripple's co-founders, like you can freeze these things, right? Uh, of course, there are ways by which uh, these Ill illicit actors can like very quickly turn and swap a USDC to, I don't know, a more censorship resistant asset, if you will. But like, I think the market is telling you like, they don't necessarily care as much about this censorship resistance. It gets talked about a lot, but like DeFi is still very much like a, an experiment. And I guess like the things that have gotten the most amount of traction are not pure censorship resistant things. It's like USDC just works and people want to use it. I've long held a view that we're going to see hybrid environments. When I mean hybrid, sort of like a, a system where, you're relying on the execution on a base layer that is as decentralized, as robust as Ethereum or Solana or Bitcoin. But you have a layer on top where there is more control. There is more, you know, you know who your counterparty is. Like realistically, if you're going to have a JP Morgan and Goldman do stuff on chain, they want to know who their counterparty is potentially only operate in pools of liquidity where they know exactly who else is in that pool. You know, we've had instances of this compound try to do it and then kind of didn't go anywhere, but like Ave Arc, and then you have L2s that are like potentially base, I think of, or Kinto. And like, if you fast forward five, 10 years from now, like we're probably going to see the most amount of activity in these type of systems, just because that's where the most amount of liquidity happens probably the better products happen. Everything else just becomes more and more marginalized and more cumbersome to operate in. And so that may just be the solution where the market solves it because that's where things are going. If you're going to operate in this like corner of the world of DeFi that, you know, is pure, then, you know, there's not much to do. And if you're operating there, then it plays a huge like target on your back that you're, clearly there because you may just be doing like, um, you know, illicit stuff and you wouldn't want that. Right. I remember funds that held Zcash. If you blinded, if you shielded your Zcash, you would have gotten a knock on your door pretty quickly because very few people were shielding Zcash before it was by default. So, you know, Monero got delisted recently. So I, I don't know, like it's a bit of a rant, but like, I'm curious if this is something where things just, you know, the things that get the most amount of traction are ones where regulators have much more comfort in um, to have some sort of degree of control, as you alluded to, implement some of these like systems that you're talking about. Yeah, I think on the, the what role does a Coinbase or a Circle have? They are the intermediaries, and so they are regulated and 
today as money services businesses uh, that do have to comply with the Bank Secrecy Act and they have money transmission laws, uh, money transmission licenses in various states. And we've seen them all getting licensed all over the world. Um, I think on the DeFi as an experiment, and I, I think I can speak for Miller and he will certainly speak for himself after this, it's some of the most exciting things of what could happen here, right? Like this is where there will be a lot of change and promise, not only, but I think if, you know, DeFi is done right, there's a lot of greatness that can come from it. And so I think figuring out some of the answers to the hard questions first, which by the way, doesn't typically happen uh, in, in uh, regulation or in tech, um, but I think having to figure out an answer to this question will allow things to really move forward from a long-term perspective with DeFi. Yeah, I think, I think your your rant, as how you described it, was on point. I think the beauty of permissionless tech is that people can use it and uh, use it for applications in different ways and however they want to. If you want to use USDC, a permissioned asset, have at it. If you want to use a permission pool, have at it. If you want to deploy a permissionless uh, pool, all the better too. I think it's... I think the beauty of this technology is that number one, folks can do that. And number two, those worlds or those conceptions of DeFi can coexist. And I think the, we shouldn't be afraid of that. Uh, it's not all or nothing. You know, we can have completely permissionless protocols only using permissionless assets. And as long as people retain the ability to use those, in my opinion, uh, why not have, uh, folks have the option to use permission pools or permissioned assets, which as you mentioned, there is clearly demand for. I think we, we shouldn't um, uh, forget that different conceptions of this technology's application is, uh, can coexist and is a key feature of the tech itself. And uh, we should welcome that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, and I didn't mean to, I mean, I, I'm a strong believer in DeFi. I was using it way back in the day. And, you know, uh, you know, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, there should always be the freedom to interact and like with and, and write code, uh, you know, that is, you know, permissionless, if you will. And that guarantee is really strong. If you're interacting in a, in a protocol that, you know, can't be controlled, corrupted, then that's, that's super powerful. That's why that's, that's why we do this. Otherwise, go back to using the traditional financial system. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I am just struggling to see how we, I mean, I think Rebecca, to your point, this is an area where, um, you know, we could use a bit more funding to iterate and build solutions that something the more sophisticated, more real time that uh, satisfies some of the kind of concerns of regulators worldwide. I think that's a big opportunity. Um, and look, this framework that we put out, is not it's not the only thing. It's, it right, can be yeah. complemented by so much. Look to your point, just even about stable coins and thinking about how important they are in DeFi. Um, there's a lot that can be done there, just, just thinking about that too. So um, I, you know, as I said before, like this is, this paper is the start. It's not the end. Um, hopefully we'll see traction. Hopefully what we'll really see is 
people taking a step back and thinking like, okay, this is a new system. We actually know what to do with software. We've been doing it, right? Like uh, Michael will say a lot when we're talking about what OSIP actually has done. If there's a if there's an incoming threat from Lazarus, they don't necessarily call the CISO of Goldman Sachs, or they may call the CISO of Goldman Sachs and AWS or whoever provides some of their cloud services or whoever you know provides services for Goldman Sachs, and they bring them in, right? Um, because we're talking about software, um, and it just we know what to do. And so hopefully the paper will get people to take a step back and look. Regulating new systems is really really hard, um, and not just right now. Um, but it has been historically, right? Uh, usually markets happen and then the regulation builds up around it. Um, and we're seeing some of that now and some of, I think, the hangover from not regulating Web 2 in an immediate sense on questions of privacy and stuff like that is catching up with Web 3, right? So we already have, we haven't regulated Web 2 properly. Um, and as I said, I think some of that, we're, we've already now moved on to like a new iteration of the internet. Uh, and we're trying to, I guess, figure out what to do here. Yeah, we are on a multi-decade journey here. Uh, I. I don't know if that's a blessing or a curse, but Sante, I, I feel you're struggling over there. Uh, and I think everyone you know, is struggling to come up with good answers to a completely novel problem. Uh, and that's going to take a while to figure out. Um, so we're definitely at the beginning of the journey. And even though there's not like clear light at the end of the tunnel yet, uh, that's okay. Yeah. I want to transition into, look, I don't mean to sound, I'm for the purposes of this discussion, I am taking kind of the opposite view or the more critical view, because this is something that our listeners are probably just wondering, right? Um, but uh, nonetheless, I mean, I think the hope that I have, and time and time again, during this regulatory series, we've, I believe that I have hope in the court systems. Um, mm. of, and that's what makes democracies great. Um, and there have been really encouraging developments on that front, you know, across a number of different cases, the courts have, you know, really um, asserted you know, what is the jurisdiction of these agencies and what is an overreach? And I think that's been largely favorable to crypto. Um, and so most recently, I would love to talk about kind of this proposed rule, the SEC around like, so uh, maybe Miller uh, or Rebecca, whoever wants to give an overview would be great. Um, yeah. The one thing I'll say, just as we're transitioning out of the illicit finance question back into the securities laws, in a in a place we're all comfortable, I think, in thinking about it is courts have been great on traditional markets and um, consumer protection questions with respect to like, are crypto, is crypto a security, are those are token securities, whatever. When it comes to national security, our agencies have massive power and huge discretion to do things that are for the benefit of U.S. national security and economic security. And so I think coming up with pro proactive solutions uh, before we have to, and look, some of it is being tested in court with the existing tornado cash um, litigation that's out there. Um, I think coming up with proactive solutions is something that should be at the forefront of everybody's um, mind. But Miller, take us, take us a, a home with the dealer rule. Sure. So it is a final rule as of yesterday, unfortunately, uh, no longer a proposed rule. But what the SEC is doing here is the SEC, one of the business uh, archetypes, I suppose, they regulate our securities dealers. 
those are businesses that, uh, as a business, buy and sell securities with counterparties. And uh, they are historically regulated by the SEC under the Exchange Act. The SEC is redefining what it means to be a dealer uh, in a way that is far broader than it used to be. It used to be you know, pretty clear cut. Are you in the business of making a market in a security? If so, uh, then you are most likely a dealer that needs to register with the SEC. They are now uh, have now finalized a rule that would make that um, uh, concept far more ambiguous to include those persons who uh, are engaging in trading activity that has the effect of providing liquidity to the market, which of course any single trade does. Um, so it, in my mind, is a part and parcel or another example of the SEC redefining. Uh, its remit in a way that is ambiguous, such that they can uh, ad hoc enforce those rules and um, do so in a way that surprises people. The yeah. the underlying um, uh, the underlying ridiculousness, in my opinion, of this whole proposal when it comes to crypto is that uh, yet again the SEC is skipping over. The core predicate question, the core predicate issue that for 10 years uh, they've known to be a problem, which is in the in crypto, what is and is not a security, because to the extent an asset is not a security, then you don't even need to be thinking about whether you're a dealer or not uh, under the SEC's regulations. They like to paper that over and say, you know, based on the facts and circumstances, you may or may not be a dealer based on the facts and circumstances uh, around what assets you are touching. And mm -hmm. if at any point in that chain of uh, subjective analysis, we disagree with you, you are going to be getting enforcement action. Um, so it really is, uh, in my mind, I think the SEC almost applying a crypto, uh, their crypto strategy to the broader capital markets. And uh, while, Crypto is specifically called out. I think it's problematic for the entire securities markets. Uh, and there has been robust comment on the rule from both TradFi and folks in crypto. Um, I think for, for DeFi specifically, the effects would be secondary in that uh, the... Uh, well, I, I suppose there's one area where it could be primary, which is if the SEC... Uh, you know. And, knock on wood, uh, it would be a stretch even for them, claims a an AMM pool itself is a dealer. Uh, but I think the, the more realistic take on how this uh, rule be, would be weaponized against DeFi is to go after major participants. Uh, is, the, is the 50 million collective or individual? It's individual, but the problem is it it's it um, only applies to this rule. So basically it'll say you could still be, even if you fall on under 50 million, you still fall under the old SEC jurisprudence and the court cases, which basically say you are a dealer. So I think the final rule doesn't fully exempt you if you're under 50 million. But you know, they, as, they say that themselves. They say we are defining a dealer in this way, and even if you don't meet our definition, you still may be a dealer. Yeah, 
Yeah. And I, I, I know they do go, they did go on during the meeting yesterday to basically say, look, we're not, if you only develop software, you're not necessarily a dealer by itself. I don't know if I think that the, the effects are secondary. Fine. Maybe software provide, maybe software developers themselves are not dealers, but I actually think the effects are very primary because it, it does what I think the SEC has been trying to do, which is to scare people out of participation. Like who's going to LP into any pool? Correct. That's exactly right. So I think it is meant to look, it's the same as what they did in a lot of the exchange cases. Fine. They went after the exchanges, but a lot of the tokens they named as purported securities were L1 and L2 tokens, right? Um, even just gas tokens, because they wanted to restrict the usage. And I think this is intended to restrict the usage. And they are looking at backdoor ways to try to cut off the lifeblood of the industry and say a lot of what we're talking about right now, right? Like the promise of DeFi is that I can be an LP, right? Um, you yeah, anyone can be a market maker, like and earn fees and like, yeah. Well, like, yeah. well that- and that's one of the ways they actually define somebody as a dealer is if you read deep down and you know DeFi, they're saying if you get LP fees, then you are also a dealer. Sure, you're facilitating liquidity. So like no matter how what size. And yeah. this 50 million is just meant to be just... Right, your size doesn't mm-hmm. have to be size. Your size doesn't have to be size because maybe it's a percentage of the pool or maybe it's like, yeah. as, you, as you pointed yeah. out, if you're a dealer, you're a dealer. It doesn't matter what size. Like that just falls under the old definition, which there's a whole precedent around that and they can point to that. It's just been so erratic. So... Um, yeah, like Jake had a good take. You know, uh, I retweeted him and he said the, the heart of the matter here, I think, is the SEC versus Coinbase. Coinbase, obviously, in that battle, they are arguing that digital assets are not securities. So to your point, Miller, if these are not securities and there's no like this rule doesn't apply, they're not securities. That's exactly right. That's so if exactly. you win that, um, then there would be all of this would be largely irrelevant. Well, the. The strange thing when you read the dealer rule is that you feel very gaslit, um, consistent with, I guess, how the industry has felt for a long time, because they're like, we've had many letters from people in the crypto asset space saying, you know, they don't want to have to comply to this rule. And it's like, well, no, what they actually said is we don't know which crypto assets are securities, so we don't know how we could comply with this rule. It's what everyone's been saying the whole time. Um, And so I think that, you know, when Miller's saying this has secondary effects, I think it's probably right. It, It does because the primary effect is the same as everything else, which is we don't know. We don't right. know who this applies to. Yeah. Like, does it apply to the? I don't know. Yeah, USDC uncertainty people? is 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 problematic. Yeah, and it's the point for that. Yeah, that's the whole yeah. point. That's a that's a feature, not a bug. Yes, that's right. Um, what's been the response uh, or the from your clients funds? I'm thinking like the jumps of the world or even, you know, my former house. Like, of course, we did a lot of stuff on chain. I have heard a lot of funds stop voting. This has been for years now. Yeah, uh, based on Uki or something like that. Yeah, exactly. BSX uh, or the that DAO. So, of course, you pierce the veil of, you know, basically said the DAO is, you know, you know there's no protection there. Uh, and now, of course, this would be like, then who wants to provide liquidity on chain or even staking? Like, uh, if you're staking your tokens, how, is that a, potentially a dealer too? Like, I don't know. Like, re, like restaking. 
Isn't that like, like, I know that's for security reasons, but that's also liquidity. Could they take a, even yeah. stretch it as far into some like eigenlayer? Even though our eigenlayer would attest, we're not, we're not here to, this is not a DeFi protocol. This is a security protocol infrastructure, but uh, I don't know. Like, <laughs> Look, not to bring it back to the paper, but like, that's why calling these things what they actually are will allow you to put together a, both a, a, a practical and an effective regulatory framework, right? If you keep calling something, you know, if, if you keep calling something, something that it's not, right? Keep saying validators are financial institutions. It doesn't make it true. Just makes it, it, it just maybe helps you long-term accomplish a goal of restricting usage of the technology. Um, and that's why the, the paper is really, really tied to what the tech does and and what we do with tech in the US today. Well, I know we've been at it for a while. Uh, any yeah. parting thoughts? And then also would love to give you guys an opportunity to, you know, shout out to like encourage our listeners in ways that they can help. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot going on under the hood. You guys are playing a huge role in that. So, yeah. Miller, take it. Closing thoughts. I will reiterate that this is going to be a long journey. And I think it, uh, I'm glad crypto is so focused on the regulatory situation. Um, I think more investment in it is going to pay off over the long term. We need more folks working on all of these problems that are not going to resolve themselves. Uh, second, to Rebecca's point, definitely we need more ideas out there. You know, I think crypto broadly is very good at saying that doesn't work, that's stupid. Uh, you know, we're good at saying what not to do. And there's a dearth of good ideas about what to do. Um, and third I actually think there are lots of good ideas. I think people are really afraid to put them out there. I think crypto Twitter, I, I really steeled myself for crypto Twitter when we put this paper out. And I said, it's so important to put a new framework out there. I'll take whatever heat I get, right? Like, um, and I think we all, so I think there actually may be lots of good ideas. I think people may be afraid to put them out there. So I think reach out to Miller or me, but whomever, and think about the best, you know, to just talk about how to put certain ideas out there. So I, sorry, I just wanted to put a fine point on that. I, 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 look, I, I back today. I did one of my largest deals in in the compliance uh, sector. Yeah, I think it's a huge opportunity. Yeah, yep, there is. Uh, and then the last thing I'll plug is we are co-hosting with the Near Foundation and Solana Foundation uh, boot camps over the next year to mm. give industry folks who you know no policy is important but don't think about it all day uh, the the rundown of what's important, what's not, and most importantly, how to be helpful and engage in the policy debate in, around crypto. So encourage folks to uh, sign up for those boot camps, which we will probably be having for uh, uh, the foreseeable future. Yeah, our next ones Rebecca. are- Yeah, go ahead. I just want to say our next ones are coming up. There are two in March, one in Paris, one in London, and then we're going to do a series in consensus. Um, and it's really cool because every time we do a boot camp, we have somebody else new from the industry reaching out, asking to sort of co-sponsor and co-host. So it's really bringing together the industry, like the policy question does bring together the industry in a very serious way, which I find encouraging. Do you, do you uh, think you have enough resources? No, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, <laughs> I was like, you just said you're gonna, this is a long battle, so like you need to be funded for like 30 years. Um, but yes, no, I mean, like order of magnitude, like how bad is the, it? The way to think about it is the crypto lobby spends about 15 to 20 million dollars a year in total, and the traditional financial system, which we are trying to upend, spends over a billion a year on just lobbying and government relations. So there is a delta there that uh, is in need of uh, filling. We have four full-time folks, and uh, there's a lot of problems to, to address. This is a, this is a proposal, I, an idea I just had. So like, we got to end the episode with a proposal, right? I've been sitting here like an idiot. Um, for every airdrop, every project should allocate a certain percentage of their total token supply to lobbying efforts slice it however you want it can be of course the DeFi education fund it could be the yes. uh, blockchain association all of them but like if every project airdrops one um, percent or some percentage basis points whatever it doesn't have to be a certain amount but if we codify that or as investors we put you know we encourage our teams to do that then yeah like like Vitalik at one point, you know, you remember when he donated a lot of the ship he got and it was like a billion dollars or something. And then, you know, to India relief efforts. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, I don't know if they liquidated the full billion, like maybe it was a fraction of that, but it's still a lot. Uh, so, yeah, I think it could be a good idea to airdrop. Like if, if you got help, if you were part of a boot camp or have received some help, um, then I think it's, uh, you know. I'm going to tell you. Anybody who loves DeFi has received help from Miller, whether they and the DeFi Education Fund uh, and Amanda and all the whole staff there, whether they know it or not, um, because they've ha you guys haven't seen all of it, but their amicus is they have amicus in Coinbase, they had an amicus in Tornado Cash, they had an amicus in a big um, case on privacy, like the things we fundamentally care about from a crypto native ethos is what underpins the DeFi Education Fund. So everybody should show. I, I know I'm a board member, um, <laughs> and so I'm biased, but like- It's okay, you're allowed to shell, it's okay. <laughs> I shell very rarely, but, um, <laughs> but uh, I just think it's an important organization to donate to, and there are lots of ways to give. Uh, and I'll say this, on the ideas thing, like, fine, I took time out of my life, as did Mike and Katya, to write this paper. Uh, and it really was a blood, sweat, and tears endeavor. But I don't know when I can do it again, right? Like, I have a real day job and other things that I do. And we, as Miller and I both said, we need these things out there. Like, a dedicated fellow, somebody who can really be working on these questions. I mean, um, there is a lot to do. And as Miller sort of made clear, there's a huge delta between who's doing it in the traditional financial services world and who's doing it and how much of it is happening in crypto. So a lot of great work being done by the Coinbase's, other big VCs. Um, yeah. and But it takes a village and we should expand our village. So um, donating time, effort and money is really important. Yep. Absolutely. Um, well, that's great. Well, that's good as any place to end it. Thank you so much for coming on. I know, um, you know, it's, it's a lot to work through and we covered probably 5%, <laughs> but, you know, hopefully we can continue to cover these things and, and surface them and really encourage people to, um, to help not just with capital, but, you know, resources. Yeah. Um, and I think it's imperative any protocol 
not just DeFi. It touches everything. Yeah. Uh, so um, really, really great work that you guys are doing, Rebecca. And you know, thanks for coming on and, and really sharing your thoughts. I really appreciate it. And hopefully uh, the audience found it useful. So fun to chat as always, Sante. We should we should yeah. record one of our lunches and actually just put that in as a fun uh-huh. podcast. <laughs> no, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm happy to keep doing these regulatory series. Miller, always welcome to come on. Uh, it's great to have you on for the first time. But yes, we like yeah. to have made repeat. It. Made it. <laughs> You've made yeah. it. That's right. <laughs> You've made the cut. <laughs> yeah, we probably should have had you sooner. So uh, apologies on our end. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks.